0: Thank you, guys. So let's uh, turn to God's Word. We're going to read today from the next passage in John's Gospel. We're reading uh, our way through John in this service, um the Cafe Church service. So we're at John chapter 5, another uh, of John's accounts, interestingly enough, which uh, is in and around the theme of of water. Well, it's around water, if not around the theme of water. We saw water into wine in chapter 2, Jesus telling Nicodemus that he had to be born of water and the Spirit in chapter 3, the woman at the well uh, in chapter 4, and here in chapter 5, we're back at water again. So, I'm going to read chapter 5 and verses 1 to 15, there are Bibles on the tables at the front, and the, words, uh, the reading will be up there on the screen uh, afterwards as well, or now, in fact. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. I'm going to read the footnote, which is uh, maybe original, maybe not original, but it does help us to understand. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, the first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Amen. May God bless His Word to our understanding. I often wondered what uh, it felt like in the pool of Bethesda. I don't mean on that day, but just generally speaking. You know, places have a, a, particular, a particular feeling, a particular uh, sense or atmosphere, I don't know whether it's just because I know that they're there, but there's a section of the high street between, you know, if you go along George Street till you come to the high street and go from there up to the infirmary, it always feels quite dark and creepy to me. Now, I think it's because I happen to know that there's a couple of magic shops uh, selling their wares, tarot and magic and all sorts of stuff, and uh, maybe I shouldn't be drawing your attention to that, but hopefully you're not going to rush off. I think one of them's closed down. But nonetheless, that little stretch of the high street always feels just quite dark and dirty and sinister to me uh, for that reason. And uh, obviously, there are parts of any place that have associations for us which may make them a happy place or may make them a place uh, of uh, pain or sorrow or regret. So, there are all sorts of ways in which different places have a feel about them. But the pool of Bethesda, if you can imagine it, must have had a very particular feel to it. I mean, you have this area where there were told there are five covered colonnades, and in actual fact, the um, people up until the 19th century thought that this was just an invention of John's, and it didn't exist. But in the 19th century, uh, archaeologists uncovered in Jerusalem the Pool of Bethesda. And then there was further excavations there in the 1960s. And so the pool of Bethesda, basically there were five columns. So we have, what, a horseshoe of columns around this place. One on each side that was covered. And then there was one in the middle, um, which was holding up and divided the pool into two halves. Um, This particular pool is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And archaeologists discovered a Jerusalem pool with five porches. So, one on each side, one in the middle. And it says, apparently, the pools were about uh, six meters deep, and together, the two halves together, were about as large as a football field. Now, when I read that, that kind of blew my mind slightly. I always imagined the pool of Bethesda was a fairly small, intimate, I'm thinking Turkish bath, you know, something fairly small. But no, we're actually probably talking about something the size of a Commonwealth pool, Uh, I don't know if a Commonwealth pool and a football field are the same size. Holly, do you know that? Oh, okay. Just thought you might. She's an expert in the field of swimming. But you don't swim in a field. Anyway, okay. So this is a vast pool. Five covered colonnades. Five covered bits and then a covered bit in the middle. And this is a place where people uh, gathered. Now, I don't imagine... Uh, that it was exclusively for the use of the invalid or the disabled. But nonetheless, they probably had their bit, their corner, uh, the bit that was given over to them where friends, family members, or whatever would carry them every time, uh, every day. Because there was this uh, myth or this superstition, or perhaps there was Uh, an ancient uh, event that had happened that had left everybody after that imagining that another miracle, another healing, another stirring of the waters was just around the corner. And I suppose if you want a modern-day equivalent, it would be Lourdes, I suppose, it would be a place of pilgrimage where sick and disabled people might go in the hope and expectation that a miracle that happened there once before would happen again, and that those who would go would be, uh, would be healed. And apparently, um, in, certainly in later years, this pool was, was what was called an Asclepion. Asclepius was the Greek god uh, of… Um, was the god, um, Asclepius, Greek, Roman, not sure, okay, um, was the god of healing. And there were pools called Asclepions, which were uh, given uh, healing or ascribed to them were healing properties. And so we have this place where at least an area of it is dedicated to people who are sick, to people who are Uh, hoping for some kind of miracle cure, who have some kind of collective community knowledge or superstition or belief in a myth that something once happened, and who knows, it might just happen again. But I wonder, and I I find it very hard to do this because I lead quite an active life, not in a sporty way, but up and about doing lots of things. And so I don't really have a frame of reference for lying on my back on a mat for 38 years. That's a long time. Those of you who are over 38, do the maths. And those of you that aren't, in fact, I remember sitting in primary school once working out that I would be 39 in the year 2000 and just being freaked out at those numbers. (laughs) The year 2000, the space age future, and being 39 was an unthinkable age. Well, this guy, 38 years, lying on his back, with a lot of other people in a world where there was limited health care, limited treatment, limited medical knowledge, and so you're living in this community of sickness. You're living in this community of of disability, and I suppose, uh, in in certainly in in old institutional terms, there were lots of institutions where people with mental illness or physical illness or what we would now class as learning difficulties would just be incarcerated, and they would be utterly institutionalized the rhythm of their life would be exactly, boringly the same, day after day after day after day. And so you have this community of sickness and poverty. You have this community, and a community being part of a community like that affects your mental state after a while. It's like any set of circumstances where you are imprisoned, either literally or in some other way, by your circumstances. And what is very difficult to hold on to as time goes on in a situation like that is any real living hope that things can be different. Because there's generally a flattening of expectation that takes place. You know, in an institution, there's a rhythm. You know, the light goes on, the curtains get opened at 7 o'clock. We get a cup of tea. We get sat on the toilet. We get washed. We get dressed. We get parked in a chair. I mean, elderly care. Uh, at, at it's, you know, um, can be like that if it's not done well or in a stimulating way. Then the lunch comes round. And then it's a cup of tea later on. And then we watch some television. And then we go to our beds at 7 o'clock at night. Day after day after day after day. Very hard to imagine things can be any different. I'm sure you've read the stories of people who have been imprisoned or incarcerated. And it's the mind that is affected. And so there's this community of sickness, this community of mindset There's this community which, let's face it, are in competition with one another. (laughs) On a daily survival basis, they're probably in competition for arms. Who's got the worst injury? Who's got the the condition that is going to generate the most pity? To my shame, I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but I was talking to somebody who described being— I'm not sure what country it was in, so I'm not going to say— Uh, But the poverty, the scale of poverty was such that um, this woman had uh, a sick child. And and they wanted, uh, it was a a mission organization, they wanted, in fact, I think it might have been Andy Bevin, International Justice Mission. They wanted to help this woman to get care for her child, but she refused because she said a sick child will earn more than a healthy child. And then the child died the next day, or when they came back the next time, the child was dead, and they wanted to take the child from her, obviously to give the child a burial and so on. And get this, she wouldn't let them take the child because she said a dead child will earn more than a sick child will earn more than a healthy child. That's the scale of poverty and the damaged mindset. And so this is a community in competition for arms. And this is a community in competition for Healing. What was it the man said when Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well? I have no one to help me, and someone else gets there first. So whenever there's a hint of a suggestion, even supposing it's just a stiff breeze blowing through and the top of the water is troubled, suddenly, pathetically, these invalids start shuffling towards the water in any which way they can to see which of them can hurl themselves into the pool first in the hope that that is the angel delivering the miracle. And so it's a community of sickness, a community in competition. It's a community that in many ways, in its mindset, was probably uh, defeated. And the hope balanced by the the no hope of years of experiencing it this way. Now, this is an extreme example, but I think it's uh, not unfair to say that there are lots of people who may physically be well, But I think there's an illustration here of how there are things in in our lives or in our stories that can be like the pool of Bethesda was. You know, mindsets are powerful things, where we imagine that this is the way it is, and it's never going to be any different. And maybe we say, well, yeah, experience has taught me that it never is any different. This man could say, well, yes, for 38 years it has not been any different. Bethesda means house of mercy. And so these people were gathering in a place that meant house of mercy, looking for some hope. And along comes Jesus. He's there for one of the festivals. We're not told which one it was, so it would have been either Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacles. They're the main three festivals that the people went to Jerusalem for. And he learns that this man has been in this condition condition for a long time and he says to him what is uh, arguably at first hearing a really offensive and rude question. Do you want to get well? Well, duh, you might say. But it's not a stupid question, of course, because it's Jesus who asks it. And so it's therefore a penetrating question. It's a penetrating question that isn't just come to this man, but it comes to any or all of us because he's not in some respects talking to his body here, is he? He's talking to his head. Of course he is. He's speaking to him, but you know what I mean. Do you want to get well? I remember years ago in my former congregation, um, Uh, praying for somebody or offering to pray for somebody Uh, and offering to pray for for healing for a man who had had a a condition that meant that for years he hadn't been able to work. He used to work as a fireman and then he had some back injury that meant he was no longer able to work as a fireman. Um, But he got quite used to not working. And I remember asking him if uh, when we offered to pray for him, if he wanted to get well. And he uh, said he did, but there was a hesitation and a pause. And I knew that if he was to get well, he would lose his benefits. If he was to be healed, he would be young enough and fit enough to go back to work and therefore, his life circumstances would change significantly, and he would then be dependent on his own labor. And so actually the question, do you want to get well, is a wise question. What are the implications of this change of circumstances for you? And so Jesus asked this man, did he have a vision for life as a healed man, or was his self-understanding, his identity, solely that, that I am a helpless invalid and nothing is ever going to change? And what's interesting in this story is that this man's answer to Jesus' question seems to me to be full of faith. (laughs) Because his answer seems to contain a passion and a conviction, a frustration and a desperation that tells me that he was still holding out for the opportunity to get into the water. If he could just get into the water, then he would be healed. And for him, it was that physical barrier between the step that he was placed on or the bit of the pool he laid beside and the distance from there to the water that was the only barrier and the only reason why he couldn't get well again. And so here is a man who uh, has faith, but he doesn't have opportunity. He has faith not in Jesus, he doesn't know who this person is. They came to ask him who it was later on, and, and uh, he, they didn't know who he was. So it wasn't that he'd heard of Jesus. But this man had faith in the power and possibility of a miracle, and a miracle from an angel, and an angel of God at that. And so he had mustard seed faith. And sometimes that's all we feel that we have. Mustard seed faith. But Jesus is okay with mustard seed faith, as long as it's mustard seed faith that is growing and becoming bigger faith. And so the obstacle was the only thing. And so Jesus then says to him something else that I, you know, face value at first reading, you could very easily under, interpret as as an offensive statement. I mean, would you walk out onto the streets of out onto Buchanan Street, and if you encountered somebody with missing limbs or somebody who was in a ch- wheelchair, would you say, get up and walk? Not unless you had absolute... <laughs> overwhelming sense of confidence and anointing that this was what God was telling you to say to that person. And yet, we're told that at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And I would love to know what the kind of sequence was there. You know, Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. So, right at that moment, what happened? Did the man sit and wait to see if something would happen? Did he make to get up, and it was in the making to get up that he felt he could do more than he'd ever been able in 38 years to do before? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But somehow, somewhere, there was a fusion of Jesus' instruction— And the faith response of the man. I often think about this passage. I often think about this passage because I know and you know, and sometimes I'm the one on the mat. But I know and you know people who are on the mat, and they may be up and going about quite uh, normally. But somewhere, and this will be true of you too, somewhere in your life, you're on a mat. You're on a mat in a situation. And the obstacles between you and that situation being healed, helped, resolved, changed, just seem utterly insurmountable. And so there are places in our lives where we are on the mat. And the only thing that we can do, it seems to us, is lie there. And we could think of, you know, perhaps an outside chance that if this happened and if that were to happen, and if this changed and that changed, then maybe, just maybe, things might get better. But frankly, frankly, I don't have the energy, I don't have the resources, and frankly, I can't do it. And Jesus came to the man and he said, get up pick up your mat, and walk. And so somehow there was a shift. Somehow the word that Jesus spoke and the man's response to it, he received it somehow as a word that was anointed, that had power. He took Jesus at his word and he got up. And I don't know what the sequence was. But it does challenge me. It does challenge me that actually the man's focus shifted. The man's focus shifted from just looking at the problem, looking at the impossible, looking at the community of sickness and competition lying round about him, and that he actually looked at Jesus and somehow something in his head and his heart came together that enabled him to believe that with this man, whoever this man is, it could be different. We sang Oceans, that song, uh, last song we sang before um, I came up here, which is based on the story of Peter climbing out of the boat when Jesus tells him to come and walk on water to him. And we know that story that as Peter uh, looked at the wind and the waves, uh, that he, he began to sink, and he took his eyes off Jesus. and Jesus reached out and caught him and said, "You have little faith. Why did you doubt?" And so I'm challenging myself, and I leave you to do to let the Holy Spirit challenge you in whatever way this is true for you, but I'm challenged that I can either look at the problems, I can either look at the impossibilities, or I can fix my eyes on Jesus and I can get up and walk. And sometimes it's in the getting up and walking, it's in the fusion of hearing and responding and of uh, trusting that the miracle begins to happen. I had a lovely phone call from uh, many of you know and remember uh, lovely Helen Wright, who has been with us a few times. Uh, tall, thin lady with white hair from Ely in Cambridgeshire, and, and Helen spent time with us during the Commonwealth Games, and then she came up last year for six weeks when the European Games were on. And uh, she's always had a heart for Glasgow and a heart for St George's Tron, and uh, as you know. Felt that God's not quite finished with her here, and we quite agree with her. Um, And so, Helen, bless her, has given. We've got incoming? Yeah, we all right? No, it's fine, good. Oh, hi, Veronica. So, we've. Helen uh, last year still felt before she went back after the European Games, God wanted her here. And so, she had made the decision that, bless her, she was going to rent out her house in Ely and uh, she's going to move up, and she's going to commit herself to here for a year, which is fantastic. She's going to move up to Glasgow, uh, and uh, she said she thought the beginning of March, and so she phoned me yesterday, um, and she'd actually texted earlier on in the week, because she knew the time was coming near, and she needed to find a flat, and I hadn't even got to the stage of standing here and saying, right, Helen's coming up to Glasgow, she needs a flat if you know of anything or anyone. So she put something on Facebook saying that she was coming up to Glasgow uh, and was uh, looking for a flat to rent. And and, uh, somebody that she'd worked with in in More Than Gold in the Commonwealth Games time all those years ago, who told her that she never looks at Facebook uh, during the week, had glanced at Facebook and had seen what Helen had written. And actually, this person, Aline, uh, her tenant in her flat uh, in Dumbarton Road in Glasgow, um, had just unexpectedly given notice to quit, uh, and she was looking for a new tenant. And so, just like that, within a matter of days, uh, Helen had accommodation fixed up. But you see, there's that combination of Helen responding to a call and stepping out in faith, and then in the stepping out in faith, discovering that the door opened and that the provision was there. You see, sometimes it can be tempting for us to kind of lie on the mat and say, well, when my body is fully suffused with healing power, I will leap to my feet. But it doesn't work like that. There somehow is an incremental response and trying and response and moving and seeing the doors open as we respond in faith. And then, of course, we have the intervention, helpful intervention of the Jewish leaders who observe this man carrying his mat and ask him why he's carrying his mat or rather... Reminds him that the law forbids him to to, uh, carry his mat. This, to me, is is a little comic gem. What has this man been doing for 38 years? Resting. (laughs) He's been resting. He's done 38 years of back-to-back Sabbaths, which is why God created the Sabbath, that we might rest from work. And here, because it takes place on the day of rest, when this man is supposed to be resting from his work, he gets a row for carrying his mat, because it's the wrong day and the wrong time. Oh, the irony and the blindness, the narrow-mindedness of these leaders who cannot see beyond the strict framework of their rules and their regulations. And ironically, this man is being given a rest. He's been given a rest from 38 years of frustration, of 38 years of begging, from 38 years of disappointment, from 38 years of frustration and not being able to work for a living and not being able to play a full part in society along with everybody else. He's given a rest from all of that, but the rest ironically requires him to get up and do something because it's the other way around from everybody else who need a rest from doing too much. And so they inquire after who this person was that made him pick up his mat and walk, and the man has no idea who it was. Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. I don't know why Jesus hadn't identified himself to this man, but it's a measure of his grace and of his understanding of his mission. Perhaps because there were lots of other people there, we're strangely not told anything about all the other sick people who were there. And I know I've heard preachers say, I'm sure Jesus healed them all. Healed them all. Well, it doesn't say that he did. And I don't know, I'd love to know what the reaction of this community of sickness would be when somebody got up and walked. Who they had known for a very long time was incapable of doing so. Did they think he'd been at it all these years? He was a fraud? Because if they didn't think he was a fraud, then why was there not a sudden clamor that a miracle had taken place outside the waters? We don't know. All these questions. And then Jesus went and found the man at the temple. said, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There are parallels here with the story of the man that was let down through the roof. Both of them were incapable of doing anything for themselves. And both of them were told to take up their mat and walk. And both of them we were given their healing in the context not just of healing as a gift, but a command and an instruction, or just a word of grace relating to forgiveness. Son, your sins are forgiven. Who is this fellow to forgive sins? That's blasphemy. And Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Okay, get up and walk. You see that one, now do you believe this one? Is there a connection between sickness and invalidity and disability and sin? No, there is not. Now, that's not to say that choices and patterns and habits of behavior, either that we have engaged in or forebears have done, may not have a physical disabling consequence on us. Fetal alcohol syndrome, for instance. There are conditions which are a direct legacy of the choices that parents have made. And equally, we have people here in the cafe all the time who are uh, affected physically because of drug misuse. So yes, there are sinful patterns of behavior which have a direct physical consequence. But let's be very, very careful because I don't think that there are any clear lines at all that uh, sin is, uh, leads directly to disability. And so Jesus is not saying to this man, stop sinning or it's all going to come back upon you. He's saying to this man, stop sinning. Because actually, the most important thing here is not that you're physically well or healed again, the most important thing is that you're in relationship with the Father. The most important thing is that you avoid an eternal punishment or separation. Stop sinning so that the worst thing that could befall anyone, sick or well, able or disabled, does not befall you. And so the man went away and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had made him well. I want to crave your indulgence just for a few minutes then and, and offer you another parallel and slightly more symbolic picture of what's going on here. We're told that this took place, and we're told quite clearly and specifically by John, it took place at the Pool of Bethesda where there were five covered colonnades. Of course, the number five in Jewish years represented the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Five was a word for law. <laughs> and those underneath it, if you like, present then with us, with a, uh, present us with a picture of the, of the sickness and the disability and the limitation of, of, of living by law of doing the best we can for ourselves. These guys were doing the best they could with the limitations of their resources. If you like, it's a, it's a picture of humankind. It's what life looks like under the law. It's, it's limited. We can't get it right. We don't succeed. We don't fulfill God's ways perfectly. And there are all these rules and regulations And if we don't get them right, well, we won't get grace, and we won't get healing. And this man is trying to get into the the troubled waters. There's pictures in the Old Testament of troubled waters. The parting of the Red Sea, I suppose, is an image of God's grace. And Jesus comes right into the midst of this context, and, and maybe... Maybe I'm just making more of it than it is. But it doesn't really matter because it's quite clear he comes into a context which is all about people trying to do the best they can with their limitations. And Jesus comes and he speaks grace where there is law. He speaks freedom where there is imprisonment. He speaks hope and permission to live where there is competition and a climate of sickness and a closed mindset. And Jesus comes and speaks the renewal and the gift of life to a people whose heads are caught up in what they have to do to get it right. There's a little picture here, I believe, and maybe I'm, as I say, making more of it than I should, of grace and law, of the gift and the generosity of God who comes to people, and this man was a sinner, stopped sinning, but comes to sinners, and he says, get up. Get up from that impossible place that you think can't be changed. Get up from that situation. Fix your eyes on me and get up. What would it look like for you to get up from your impossible place, to throw off the mindset that says, I can't or it can't, and to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take a little baby step, and you show me the next one and the next one. The Jewish leaders we're in slavery, and they come along if you like as the as the jailers. <laughs> they are the prison guards in this five color co, co, uh, this uh, pool area. The the, jail, the 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 guardians of the law who come along as soon as this miracle of grace takes place and says, "Law, law, law! You've broken the rules. Get back on your mat." But he stuck with what Jesus said, which was freedom, which was life, which was grace to a sinner, and a sinner who had been that way for 38 years. I think there's a reason why Jesus healed him, because I believe that even when we've been stuck a long time, there's still grace and possibility. We can't fix it by ourselves but there's grace and there's possibility. So what are you crippled by? What impossible mindset leaves you thinking that there's nothing else to do? Because there's so many obstacles between you and the waters. This is a place where the rules imprison and the possibilities Are distant. Well, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Imagine Jesus coming to you on the mat of that impossible place and saying, come on, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Not because you try a little harder or you push a little further, but because you fix your eyes on Jesus and say, Lord, I don't want to be stuck in this place. I don't want to be stuck in the situation or circumstance. Show me the way out. Show me the way through. Show me the way forward. We're going to share communion in just a little minute. And the invitation goes to any and all of you that call Jesus Savior and Lord. And it's an invitation to take a broken-off piece of bread and a sip of wine, although it's grape juice we use here. Because they are signs of the brokenness of Jesus, who knows what it is to experience brokenness. And yet, it was because His brokenness was at every stage yielded up to the Father— not my will but yours be done, that allowed Jesus, yes, to lie in death and in the tomb that Joseph gave to him, but also to get up out of the tomb, to be raised from death to life. And his invitation is, take my brokenness into your brokenness in order that my resurrection be your resurrection, in order that my gift of freedom, my expression of loving grace and welcome, that my undeserved freedom for you might be yours.